0: Everyone, you're listening to Straight Talk with the Doc, a podcast that talks about addiction, mental health, and treatment. My name is Haley, and I'm joined by our content director Jeff and our medical director Dr. Bot. How are you guys doing today?
1: I'm great, Haley. How are you? How are you and Jeff doing?
2: I'm doing well, Dr. Bot. Um, it's a good day. It's definitely a good day today.
0: Great. So, Dr. Bott, as an addiction medicine specialist, you've encountered people coming to you who have been misdiagnosed, and unfortunately, it is something that happens sometimes. Um, This can have a huge impact on the rest of someone's life if they don't receive the right diagnosis and treatment for their mental health disorder. So today I wanted to talk about that, and I wanted to start by asking you, why does misdiagnosis happen?
1: Um, you know, that's a good question because when we're speaking about mental health disorders and addiction issues, um, I think the biggest problem that occurs is that often one can mimic another. And so, if you look at um, substances of abuse, when somebody's using, for example, something that could make you sedated or depressed, oftentimes that obviously can mimic a primary psychiatric condition like a major depressive disorder. Similarly, if you're using a drug that is, you know, something that can speed you up or stimulate you, that can make mimic other drugs, uh, other mental health conditions, I'm sorry, like, you know, anxiety conditions or uh, bipolar disorder. So I think what happens is due to the nature of Um, substance use and mental health conditions going together oftentimes that um, it often is not seen clearly by the practitioner because the symptoms can mimic one another and they're often used together. uh, It takes a very sophisticated diagnosis and time with the patient to really separate the times where symptoms have occurred while using and while not. And I often think that you know, based on the way healthcare, you know, goes nowadays, it often is not occurring in that manner.
0: Can you kind of give like an example, I guess, of like a certain drug that would mimic, say, you know, like depression? Um, also, I'm wondering, do people go in, you know, and try to get a diagnosis, but they're not completely honest about, you know, substances that they may be taking?
1: Yeah, this that's a two-part question. So I'll go with the first part of like, there are many drugs that can mimic primary psychiatric conditions. And let's just use, for example, cocaine, cocaine is a stimulant, medi- a stimulant drug, and it causes symptoms where people can have increased energy. They can feel very good. They can often become paranoid. They can start to behave irritable or reckless. And if you look at those cluster of symptoms, it can often mimic somebody who might have a primary psychiatric condition called bipolar disorder, where they're, if they're in their manic phase, they can be, again, irritable, uh, euphoric, very happy, uh, very overly energized, talking very quickly. But at the same time, in certain parts of mania, it can even, you know, get to the spectrum of psychosis, where they become paranoid. And um, it can really look like somebody who's using a stimulant like cocaine, or even an amphetamine product. So that's an example where it could be hard to distinguish the two if one is coming into an emergency room, for example, and they're high on that stimulant product, and a doctor is just looking for real quick answers. Um, a patient could not be as forthcoming because they're not in the right state of mind, and they could even come in with a previous misdiagnosis that gets repeated just due to the complexity of teasing that out on the time that it takes to figure it out. So, yeah, this this can happen uh, often. And then the second part of your question, you had mentioned that um, you had, what was the second part that you, had, you were asking on that? That
0: people might not, you know, be completely forthcoming, you know, they're seeking a diagnosis for a mental health disorder, you know, but they're also like abusing drugs or alcohol. You know, are people sometimes not completely as blunt uh, yeah. as they should be?
1: Yeah, that's definitely hap- that happens a lot in substance use because, in general, um, substance use disorders, people have a lot of denial. They have a lot of denial about what they're doing and how they're using it. So they they often minimize. So right there, either due to shame or guilt, embarrassment or whatever, just even it perceived by society, something somebody's doing something wrong. Um, they it's hard to to divulge that hey, I'm using an illegal product or. I'm I'm doing something that is is so frowned upon, and so yes, they they do withhold a lot of the specifics, and that is why often it would push somebody else to go away from a substance use disorder more to a primary uh, mental health diagnosis.
2: I was just going to add that <clears throat> I don't know your thoughts on this, Doctor Bot, but I have been told by several therapists and your know, treatment center type things they will not actually even diagnose someone conclusively with well, a mental health disorder until they have been sober for 6 to 12 months simply because the effects of so many substances so closely mirror that of mental health conditions that it's pretty hard to get an accurate diagnosis as to whether like they're actually experiencing this mental condition or if they're just somehow going through either um you know uh, use use of the drug or you know withdrawal or post withdrawal syndrome
1: yeah you ask a, a good question, and um I think that there is some variability in how people approach that so if we just look at from the the diagnosis statistical manual for diagnosing psychiatric and substitutes conditions the d s m five um you know you should not have a primary mental health diagnosis if you think or suspect that the symptoms could be caused by a substance, either through its intoxication or through its withdrawal. And you kind of think that it could extend 30 days in, in, a, in a direction, even when somebody is stopped. So you know, six months to 12 months might be a, a little far-fetched because you know it, it could be very difficult to track that individual, follow that individual, or even be um, you know, in a therapeutic alliance relationship with that person. But, you know, you could, if you took the time and the person is clear enough, ask them in a chronological fashion to try and elicit symptoms that did occur um, while happening, um, while they were intoxicated or going through withdrawal. And um, if that person um, is capable, they can provide those. But yeah, usually we don't try to make a um, specific diagnosis right away if we feel the person's symptoms are secondary to the substance of abuse or coming off withdrawal. And we try to let that provisional stage of diagnosis extend in th- about 30 days. Um, but um, I also think that if somebody's not intoxicated and depending on their degree of impairment and effect, uh, many patients are able to, um, through the right guidance, through the right questioning, um, tease out how they feel and remember a lot of these times these are working diagnosis if you stipulate that if you if you don't make the person believe or hold on to that and, and let them know look we are figuring this out it happens in medicine all the time sometimes we have to further investigate as the disease or the course of any symptoms evolve so we try and give a a rule out we try and entertain um, a spectrum of diagnosis to not label somebody inaccurately. Unfortunately though, that can't happen when people are just jumping. So it's better to rule out anything that could be secondary to a medical condition, secondary to um, a substance of abuse before making that primary mental health disorder, but necessarily waiting six to 12 months, maybe uh, that seems a, little, seems a little long. I think people can um, be in a state where they can uh, provide symptoms if asked correctly in a shorter amount of time than that.
0: Right. Especially because people may be self-medicating, you know, struggling with depression and, you know, drinking a lot of alcohol, you know, to try and make themselves feel better. In reality, it's probably only going to make them feel worse, but they might have a harder time stopping, you know, compared to somebody who doesn't have depression. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Like the self-medication?
1: Sure. I mean, I think many people when, 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 when we suffer with addiction, you know, we're dealing with, you know, negative feelings. We're dealing with stressful situations, not just because of why we start using a drug or alcohol in the first place, but often secondary to the consequences that are created from the substance use. Right? So when you think about it, you know, you might have started using to pursue some sort of pleasure, some sort of happy feeling and, or recreational use. Um, as that starts to become, you know, um, detrimental, as that starts to gain, you know, uh, momentum and you start using in excess, most of the time these do have negative consequences that you have to live with. And so, you know, we often want to drink or use drugs to escape those things. So right there, you know, many people have a perpetual, you know, uh, an additional reason to keep, you know, escaping from dealing with what's happening in real life. If you complicate this with other primary mental health conditions prior to even starting using, once you do use, if you end up mitigating your depression somehow by using a substance that takes away those symptoms, yeah, that can reinforce us using again because many people who use, for example, um, you know, cocaine, um, they often either are pursuing a high that they're getting when they're manic and they like to replicate it, or they're often trying to escape from maybe a, a depressive disorder that they might have and that cocaine brings them up to maybe a normal level. Uh, other reasons, like for example, somebody who you know, might be anxious and ends up having a, a drink or two and starts to feel that calming effect of alcohol um, that could end up creating this negative relationship with uh, alcohol where you end up using to take away those uh, uncomfortable feelings so it's really this mismatch that occurs or maybe they look at it as a match that occurs where the the right drug at the at the right time unfortunately can further you know reinforce somebody to use and yes self-medicate to take away mm-hmm. um negative feelings
2: So I know that you've mentioned um, several different, you know, examples, but are there any, you know, particularly common examples that you can give of a mental health disorder that is often misdiagnosed uh, as a result of substance abuse or or vice versa?
1: Well, when you look at like the more common mental health conditions, like people seek help for depression or anxiety. um, Yeah, many people might be labeled that while under the scope of a substance use issue. So um, I know I'm repeating myself when I'm talking about, it takes a sophisticated, trained individual to to ask the proper questions and put them in the right context in order for us to make an accurate diagnosis. But um, depression, anxiety, being that they're more common, also are more commonly diagnosed in the scope of addiction and and substance use. And they could be mis- misattributed to, um, the, the side effects or the symptoms created by the substance. So those two in itself, di- uh, depression and anxiety are often uh, given very um, quickly. That's not saying that they might not have an accurate one, but often uh, depending on where the person is being evaluated, often that's a quick diagnosis to give. But then there's conditions like bipolar disorder. Uh, bipolar disorder is a disorder where you have um, periods of sustained elevated mood and periods where you can have depressive symptoms now they call it bipolar because of that that you know difference in poles of the higher end depression and the lower feelings of uh i mean the higher end mania and the lower feelings of depression and that often um is mimicked when you're using substances you know the minute you're using something that lifts your mood and makes you act erratically or with a lot of irritability and it's sustained with you know, grandiosity and you, you know, jump from one task to another. Um, you know, that happens when people are using and then when they're when they're the drug is removed, they can drop down and be in a state of um, depression and dysphoria and that can look like bipolar disorder. And that often is a diagnosis. I believe that's um, that's really uh, some that's really inaccurately diagnosed and often quickly, um, you know, put down on paper. Or an electronic health record uh, prematurely, and I'm not saying that people who get diagnosed with bipolar disorder and who are using are all getting an accurate diagnosis. No, I'm just saying that that um, it can't happen because they can look um, they can look alike, and uh, also like ADHD. You know, when somebody's using drugs and alcohol, they have they have a lot of attentional you know issues, and they can because of the withdrawal become very restless and very um, fidgety. And so a lot of times, even though ADHD is classically a condition that starts in childhood, a lot of times we see people who maybe are not um, suffering from a true ADHD diagnosis get falsely diagnosed with that. So, you know, there is a list that I think we can exhaust here, you know, while we're online. But um, this is just a few examples that, um, you know, we have to be cautious. The, The clinician has to be prudent to make sure that we are aware of what symptoms can be produced by substances and are we really putting them in the right context and not um, prematurely or falsely attributing that to uh, a primary mental health, you know, diagnosis, even though not to, sorry, Haley, even though oftentimes they are co-occurring with people who suffer from a substance use disorder. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask, because like you brought up, for example, bipolar disorder, how does that affect somebody in the long term if they receive a misdiagnosis of bipolar disorder when they're younger? How is that going to impact the rest of their life, you know, emotionally and as well as with medication?
1: That becomes very complicated because, you know, we, we hope you know, even though medicine has so much advancement, right. And uh, especially when it comes to more tangible medical conditions where you can see on an x-ray or look, um, at blood work, uh, mental health conditions, unfortunately don't have that level of, um, you know, concrete diagnostics yet. Although there are many advancements in the way we understand mental health and addictive disorders. And the reason I preface this is that, um, you know, A lot of times when they when people get first exposed to um, psychiatric practitioners or the need to be psychiatrically evaluated is often when they're in a state of um, despair or they're in a state of symptoms, which makes somebody or themselves seek out, um, you know, uh, help. So. If this is during the time that they're intoxicated or they're high on a substance for example that leads them to go to the emergency room or leads them to seek quick um psychiatric evaluation um, it can be difficult because the person can be impaired still under the influence of you know drugs and alcohol still have the residual effects of being on a substance and it might be hard for them to even articulate or for themselves distinguish that. So when they're labeled incorrectly, they're exposed to not only the stigma of a mental health condition, they themselves now think that's what they have. They're taking medications that often may not work because they're being given for a disorder that they don't have. And unfortunately, this can lead to a pattern of, you know, frustration, um, lack of remission of symptoms. And it it can lead to failure of addressing the primary underlying condition that could be the substance of abuse or even the lack of effectiveness of the medication in the event that it is co-occurring with the substance that's happening. Well, when you're using, um, at the same time, your medications aren't going to be effective. So it can lead to a pattern of despair, frustration. Um, just, Negative consequences from acting out on your substance use disorder, or not having the primary mental health condition truthfully uh, addressed, and um, until it actually gets teased out somewhere along the line, it, it could take years um, until they meet a proper practitioner who's who, or, or they're in the right situation where somebody untangles all of
0: it. And that kind of brings me to like the second part of this is. How does somebody get the right diagnosis? If they're listening to this and they're thinking, you know, I'm not sure if I really have this. Like, how do they seek that out? Where do they go?
1: You know, if a patient or, or somebody listening to this, um, they really should go to a proper addiction professional or a psychiatric professional that, that deals with mental health conditions and substance use disorders. A lot of times when we are suffering from addiction, we end up not really following uh, a primary mental health provider, either a therapist or a medical doctor, physician who is has the expertise in this. And we kind of go not to say that adequate mental health care can't happen um, with your primary care physician. But like if I'm diagnosed with cancer, I hopefully I'm going to go to an oncologist if I have an eye illness, I hopefully will go through an eye specialist, ophthalmologist. Uh, similarly, uh, finding a professional that specializes in those conditions versus you know going to the ER, for example. And uh, and, and a lot of times, I, again, I'm not holding it against anybody. This is something that unfortunately, when we're suffering with something that affects our mind, we're not thinking correctly. We're not looking out for our, our best interest. So we only might seek out help when we are in, you know, difficult situations when they're in their extreme. And it doesn't just happen in addiction. We see that often in many other chronic illnesses where people only seek help when they get, you know, so bad that it ends them up in the emergency room. You know, it's about really managing that. Um, But, you know, with addiction, the difficult part is it alters the way we think, you know, that's that separates it from many other disorders in the fact that the way we behave and the way we think is secondary to something that's affecting our our mind. And unfortunately, that doesn't often lead us to seek the specialist that we need, or often puts us in circumstances where we only receive care when it's an emergency. So Mm -hmm. um, it's really looking out and trying to connect with the, the trained professionals to help.
0: Yeah. Is there anything a patient can do to help their clinician make a more accurate diagnosis?
1: It's it's important to you know, if there's a period of lucidity and clearness to really write down um, what you what you feel. It's often and this again it applies to seeking out healthcare anywhere. If uh, oftentimes we get to the doctor and uh, or the therapist, the clinician, or whoever, and we forget what we what what was happening, and often just because there's this white coat syndrome, there's this there's this barrier to really disclosing so many different things. So it's best to, you know, remember, write it down, keep track of things and, and help the uh, practitioner out by having something there which you can refer back to, because oftentimes it, it, it gets a little stressful and we can't really we leave And we're like, oh, my God, I didn't say this. I should have told them this. So keeping track, journaling and uh, writing down, you know, when do the symptoms occur? What are some of the things that trigger the symptoms? What are the, some of the things that you know make the symptoms better? Uh, what are they associated with? And you know, there's so many different variables um, that you can look at. But keeping track of those um, measurements, those metrics, as it relates to one's symptoms, and in what context—either while abusing or while not—can help a clinician um, tease out the diagnosis. Okay.
0: Is there a certain amount of time that you think somebody should say, you know, write all of this down for? Would it be like a few weeks, a few months, you know, before they take this to a specialist?
1: I mean, that, that, that's hard to, to say. I mean, I guess the longer the better, but hopefully somebody's not waiting so long that they're not, not getting the help that they need. So, you know, that, that's, I think, a, a, an individualized question, um, case by case basis based on the person. But yeah, you know, if you're suffering with something... You know, try and keep track of why you're seeking the help in the first place. And again, it's not easy often when our mind is hijacked by by an illicit substance or alcohol. But um, yeah, keeping as long of a track, I think, would, would be very useful, especially when we're trying to look at and diagnose a disease by um, your chronological history and also the, the presentation when you get to the doctor. The doctor is going to be asking you questions about what's going on now and what's happened in the past- as it relates to your symptoms and other parts of your um your health so it's important and I should include this is that you know listing the medications that you take listing the other medical conditions that you may have you know talking about if you use any you know caffeinated products or tobacco products you know you have to be um willing to disclose not just parts of your of your life Because I think what happens is this selective disclosure that takes place and then, you know, the doctor, you know, doctors are human, so they can't always, um, you know, get grasp everything on the first time. So it's important that the patient does their best to be honest and keep track as long as possible of their symptoms and also be prepared to talk about any other medical conditions, uh, social habits, family history of certain things that can help guide a, a practitioner to the accurate diagnosis.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I think honesty is just so important in that process.
1: Of course. And, it, and it's again, it's very hard for people who might be feeling, you know, I can't say this because I'm going to be judged by somebody. That's often the fear of people who suffer with addiction and mental illness have, is that they think they've done something wrong. And although this has evolved in uh, the United States and all across the world in accepting mental health issues and substance use disorders, still the person who's suffering with it, um, it's not easy to, to talk about. And often when you're so depressed or so um, not just after the fact, but whatever's going on in your mind, it may be not allowing you to get through. So talking with supportive family members, reaching out to people in your uh, support system Um, it could be anybody from, you know, clergy to your friends, um, to anybody that you can trust, um, having their support also can help you, um, you know, get some resonance and and some feedback and, and, um, get pointed in the right direction.
0: Absolutely. Shouldn't just sit on it alone. (laughs) Um, is there anything on misdiagnosis that I didn't ask you or bring up that you want to talk about, or you think people should be aware of?
1: You know yeah in the end of the day as i speak to everybody it's it's a difficult thing to do accurately um mental health conditions are not a uh a, it's something that's a, a product of our mind and it's an abstract thing it's hard for people to really just check off and i think in the attempt to simplify things you know people are using just check off lists or symptom recognition and putting them in a cluster and saying, that's it. But, um, you know, that isn't it. And, and especially since we've talked about it here, you know, so many different substances can look like mental health conditions and underlying mental health conditions can push somebody to pursue substances. It's really important that uh, a clinician take the time necessary to go through a chronologic history from hopefully from birth till the present moment. And, you know, uh, we have a tendency to look backwards, but also maybe to help put things in order for somebody do it, you know, progressively going from birth to the present moment, because it helps put things in chronological order of how they occurred and, uh, you know, taking the time. I think a lot of times we're, we're pushed due to, you know, medical records or patient load or whatever, but, you know, people who practice mental health, um, you know, treatment, need to be prepared to invest the time in spending with somebody because that's the only diagnostic tool we really have that we can rely on is is that diagnostic interview, which is a interaction with the patient and going out to corroborate information, not simply talking to a patient who might be intoxicated or in an emergency situation, but reaching out to family members and um, collateral information from a previous treatments to to see, you know, what's substantiative and what's not, what's accurate, what's not, and the patient be prepared to, um, you know, provide that information and not feel as much as it's easy to say here, but not feel ashamed, guilty, um, to disclose that information and help the practitioner out by being prepared, putting things in order for them, and um, highlighting what what the problems are. So I'm not to get tangled up when they get um, to that moment where they actually have somebody who can help them mm-hmm. in front of because them.
0: That's how you get, you know, the right treatment plan.
1: Exactly. Okay.
0: Well, thank you for talking with me today, Dr. Bott. Um, and thank you for everyone that tuned in. You can check out more of our podcast episodes at addictioncenter.com. And I will see you next time on another episode of Straight Talk with the Doc.